Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode kicks off a new season, the second half of 2022, which will be Classic Hollywood. All through this season, I'm going to be covering uh, Classic Hollywood, just as the title says. But sometimes it'll be capsules, sometimes it'll be full film reviews, where the full 15, 20, 30 minutes, however, is devoted to a single film. Uh, For this episode, it will be a single film. It will be Swing Time, the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers musical. Please write in any feedback you have on this film or any others, including way past episodes going all the way back to the beginning of this podcast. I always want to hear people engaging with the archive. Um, On the previous episode, by the way, we covered the film Interstellar, which wrapped up a season focused on uh, pairs or trios of films by directors, Jane Campion, uh, Darren Aronofsky, and Christopher Nolan. So Interstellar wrapped up the Nolan section, obviously. Since the previous episode, I've been pretty busy on my Lost in Twin Peaks feed. I've continued to cover season three. I did episode number 33 on parts three and four uh, since that previous episode where I'd already been kind of halfway through that week. I did an illustrated companion on those episodes where I have screenshots illustrating the time codes of various subjects in that uh week of daily episodes on uh, that those uh you know twin peaks parts and then i also released the current events and the in the weeds and the archive episodes uh since then for numbers 34 through number 37 i've released seasons three parts eight uh parts five through eight i had illustrated companions for each of those episodes and then the week of podcasts for each one Usually a welcome episode, an out-of-town episode, a back-in-town episode covering the stories that take place outside of Twin Peaks and inside Twin Peaks, a mythology episode, a current events episode where I cover what was going on in 2017 at the time these episodes were released, In the Weeds where I do the statistics, and Archive where I read my own pieces uh, from the past. And for part six, I had an extra back in town episode because there wasn't much to talk about mythology, but there was a lot to talk about inside of Twin Peaks. And then for part eight, rather than doing in town and out of town, I did an in the present and in the past episode on those. I also had guests for that episode, Em and Steve from the No Ship Network podcast, uh, Sparkwood in 21. These were all recorded back in 2018, but I've extensively re-edited them, re-presented them. They're very time-absorbing. I mean, I've talked about this elsewhere, but these podcasts are just swallowing up everything else that I would like to do. So uh, hopefully I can continue it. I'm hoping to continue Part 9 this weekend, but it's going to depend what I get done really tomorrow at this point. Um, So we'll see. But uh, for now, you've got up to part eight available on that feed so check it out also on the twin peaks cinema feed i released episode number 14 mysterious skin this concluded the trans uh the traumatic transformations miniseries where i talk about films where characters who've experienced some sort of trauma um have like a either very overtly supernatural kind of uh um escape from it or they have a kind of fable story that they tell about it. So uh, that obviously relates heavily to Twin Peaks. On YouTube, I put up a video called Remembering the Class of 2002 Fictional Documentary, in which I shared my short film from almost 10 years ago. I thought this would be a good time to do so, because it had never appeared on my Lost in the Movies channel. It only appeared on a separate channel before. 
And uh, it was appropriate because this is the 20th anniversary of the class of 2002. So this was a film told when people from that generation or that, you know, high school class would be in their late 20s. And now much time has passed, although for the characters in this film, um, you know, they're all, well, you'll, you'll see if you check out the film, but uh, this, you know, time has not passed for them. And also, I released Twin Peaks Conversations number 11, audio, with Queen of Hearts director Cameron Cloutier, with a cross post that I put up on my site, where I have a conversation um, with Cameron, who has had me on his uh, podcast on YouTube many times, and now he's directed a fan film about Annie Blackburn. So we have a great, very long conversation about that, over an hour on YouTube, and then on Patreon for the $5 a month tier, or at least Patreon exclusive part two of Twin Peaks Conversation with Cameron Cloutier, where we talk for another two and a half hours. So this is one of the longest conversations I've had on there. You definitely want to check it out if you like in-depth Twin Peaks conversation. We talk about his film, we talk about season three, all kinds of stuff. Uh, on Also on Patreon for the dollar a month uh, crowd, I released a belated episode for June where I had my updates podcast and the film and focus and then also did one for July just recently. So that's episode 91, The Morning Show, plus feedback, media, work updates, everything, everywhere, all at once, Belfast, Benjamin Franklin, Latin American history, the office finale, Joan Chen's career, the Oscars slap, generational shifts, archive reading, making my movie, class of 2002, and more. So I talk about making the short film that I put up on YouTube. I read that piece that I wrote in the past. Episode 92, The Power of Nightmares, plus feedback, media, work updates, King Kong vs. Godzilla, In the Line of Fire, political shifts, the Iraq War, archive reading, an American, Par uh, an American in Paris, and more. Now on my site, I published status update, The House is Black on Wonders in the Dark, barely keeping up with public podcasts and patron Patreon delay, and then another status update, remembering the class of 2002 and getting ahead on Lost in Twin Peaks. So that's what I've been up to. Um, again, on the Patreon, just to clarify what those uh, topics I mentioned are, uh, The Morning Show is a TV show on Apple TV where um, Jennifer Aniston and uh, Reese Witherspoon play anchors of a morning show. thought there was a lot of interesting stuff to discuss there, so I made that kind of the anchor of that episode. And then the other Patreon episode is anchored by the Adam Curtis documentary about the uh, early years of the war on terror and everything leading up to it. Okay, so... That's it. Let's now move on to the film itself. The rollicking romance of a gambling hoofer who loses his heart to a beautiful dance teacher in a merry mad chase of melody and mirth to the building tunes of six hit songs by Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. The hilarious comedy of Victor Moore, Helen Broderick, and Eric Blore. Spectacular production numbers Stunning beauties and the toe-tapping magic of the king and queen of captivating rhythm, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. You're not going to run out with all our dough. i got to get married. I wouldn't let you marry her for $10,000. How about twenty? Not for $20,000. $25,000. Swing Time was recommended by Lawrence. This is a film that I watched for the first time about 10 years ago when I was in a major Astaire Rogers kick on my site. Uh, during that fall, I saw, uh, I think the film Stage Door, 
which led me into watching more Ginger Rogers films. It was either that or Carefree, which actually is an Astaire Rogers film. I'm not sure which, but she was kind of my way into the Astaire Rogers universe, which is interesting because I think a lot of times it's more uh, Fred's dancing. But as I got into them, you know, I began to appreciate the dance sequences a lot. And I made a whole compilation of all of the dance sequences and all the Astaire Rogers films, all of the duets, I guess, all of the, the sequences where they're together. And originally they were all on YouTube clips that I compiled on this page, but those kept getting deleted. So finally I just uploaded them myself to, uh, at the time, to Blogger rather than YouTube. And, you know, I had some comments sort of scattered throughout with them, but it, it was just sort of interesting to collect them all in one area because the films themselves, when you actually measure them out, of course, the dance sequences are kind of a small part of them. They're the heart of them. They're the reason you see the movies to see, you know, this great screen couple dancing together. But ultimately, there's a lot of other stuff there. And so one question, I guess, when, when watching an Astaire Rogers film or talking about them is, how does that other stuff hold up? And I think even though you can definitely say that the dance sequences are really the crux of it, the point of it, they are well accompanied, I guess you could say, by, by the other material. Like it, it usually serves the dance as well. And often the dances are kind of parts of the story in a way they they grow out of the story you know not to the same extent as like a later sort of a, like a rogers hammerstein musical or something where the plot is actually in some ways delivered through some of the songs sometimes they're more irrelevant than that but maybe more so than some earlier musicals the story of swing time follows a gambler who is about to get married. None of his dance troupe wants him to get married because they all want to kind of keep their jobs or whatever. So he uh, is held up. They, they make a big fuss about his pants not being the right kind of trousers, out of date, and they distract him and they get him gambling a little bit with them until finally he is uh, misses the wedding. So he goes to the house and the father's all upset and he promises that uh, actually he's opening, he's starting a business and he's made some money earlier today and he's going to make more and that's why, you know, it's it's kind of ludicrous. It's not it's not really supposed to be that plausible of a plot, but it, it gets the wheels in motion. So he goes off to, I guess it's New York, and I didn't realize that until the end of this film when they have a shot out of a window and you see Central Park below. I said, oh, for some reason I thought it was like some Midwestern city somewhere. I'm not sure why. It definitely has a New York feel in a lot of parts, but that, that was kind of my first instinct. But he goes to New York, and uh, he's dressed as a as you know a groom because he was about to get married but he hopped a freight train to get there left the dance troupe behind who we never see again so after them being the reason for him missing the wedding they just totally fall by the wayside but in new york he meets the character played by ginger rogers and she's a dance instructor they have a whole meet cute back and forth about a lucky lucky quarter and uh getting the change for it and then trying to get it back and then a cop thinks that she's accusing him of stealing scurrilously or whatever and and him and the cop get an argument you know all of this stuff, you don't really need to know, but it's amusing to watch and it kind of sets the, the tone right. And then a half hour into the movie, I, I had forgotten that it takes this long, a half hour into the movie, we finally get the first musical sequence. And the first song is Pick Yourself Up. And in this number, Ginger is supposedly teaching him how to dance and he's terrible and she insults him and the boss tries to fire her and kick her out. But then he saves it by showing how well he can dance and, th and thanking her, you know, because he was faking, uh, obviously, the whole time. And they get a job at a nightclub, and then it goes from there. And there's sort of a... I think the most interesting story stuff, the most amusing story stuff, is earlier in the film with with that situation where she's the dance instructor and there's a sort of a false identities or whatever. And then 
earlier than that when he's being prevented from going to the wedding. He's trying to convince the father and all this. As it goes along, it goes into just a very kind of straightforward uh, romantic situation where the band leader is trying to get her and he's trying to avoid going back to his fiance, etc., etc. And at that point, there's a lot more music. So that kind of takes over for the story anyways. But there's a lot of great numbers in this film. Uh, one of them is the title number, Swing Time, which it has, I think, some something in common with a lot of the top hat numbers from the, the previous film where it's this elegant ballroom dance, but a little jauntier, a little flashier. And, and that kind of goes for the movie as a whole, I think. This is a, directed by George Stevens. It's the only Astaire Rogers film directed by George Stevens. It has a feel that I associate with a lot of his films. Well, a lot of his 30s films, I should say, uh, whereas the snappy, fast-paced vibe but also willing to just linger and have these awkward pauses where there's like an extra beat in the cutting to just soak in the moment. Like there's a lot of reaction shots where he'll just leave it for longer than you'd think he would. Basically, there's a rough, raw feel to it. Like it's shaped around the mood or the energy of the scene. In that way, it's different from his later films, which are stately and precise almost to a fault. Shane being the most famous example of that, his Western from 1953, where he has the deer poking its head up and the antlers frame the character coming in and every shot could sort of be hung on a wall very precisely so. Some people almost find it too mannered. I, I like that film quite a bit. But you know, he also did Giant, Place in the Sun being another example. In these films, I think you get a much more precise uh, clockwork filmmaking in these earlier films like Gunga Din or, or this film, you get something much looser and broader. Woman of the Year, the first Tracy Hepburn film, same thing. There's a lot of beats like that, like reaction shots. She'll say something, they'll cut to Spencer Tracy and he'll like take a moment to respond. I don't know. I just find that kind of interesting. But I think you see it in the musical numbers to a certain extent as well, just the way they're filmed and the style they have. Now, of course, to be fair, George Stevens was not choreographing any of this. It would have been Fred Astaire and I think Hermes Pan, who was the choreographer who worked with him on all these films. But there's just, what I'm saying is there's like a holistic effect to the film where the type of story it is, the type of performances, the type of music that they use and the type of dances just all kind of coalesce into a certain flavor for the film. I think Follow the Fleet for their sailor and a girl who dances in a nightclub. That's the most Great Depression vibe of any of their films, where they're not putting on pretenses hardly at all, except later in the film, they kind of dress up nicely for a big musical number, but they're, they're playing a part, you know? In that film, they're more humble origin, but in, in a film like Top Hat, they have this aristocratic sheen where they're part of this upper crust that stays in these nice hotels. Swing Time is somewhere in between. Uh, you have these characters who do have access to these upper echelons, this nightclub life. At one point, Lucky, who is the Fred Astaire character, literally buys the contract of the orchestra leader who won't play the song so that they can perform for the nightclub. And he's also, of course, the romantic rival, the one who's interested in Ginger Rogers. Roger Ebert used to say that all of the romantic rivals in Astaire Rogers films look like they have hair shirts under their tuxedos. You know, they just are very stiff and awkward, uh, purposefully so. At the same time, of course, you know, Fred Astaire is broke at one point. He's riding the, uh, the freight train. There's a very up and down feel to it. And Ginger Rogers is just a humble dance instructor who kind of gets elevated because he comes into her world and then the head of the dance studio tries to book them at a place. And you know, gets gets them sort of moving up that ladder of, of performing. And that's all of the Astaire Rogers films have it to a certain extent because they're usually usually playing performers, particularly, you know, Fred Astaire's characters. Ginger Rogers, not always, sometimes. 
Sometimes she is, but you know, they exist in that kind of uncertain world where they can be making a lot of money one minute and not so much the next. But usually it trends one way or the other. As this film moves along, they kind of move up that world to a certain extent. The cast definitely draws from some of the other Astaire Rogers films. For example, you have he Helen Broderick, who's in several of them, and then Eric Bloor, who is always a lot of fun in the uh, just his mincing ways in the Astaire Rogers films. I kind of missed Edward Everett Horton, who's in a lot of them. He does the best double takes. But there's a nice cast assembled around them, and they all kind of have fun with it. Victor Moore is a lot of fun as Astaire's kind of sidekick. Uh, his name, I guess, is Pop. I thought initially he was maybe supposed to be his dad, but then I realized, like, no, he's just a uh, buddy slash, you know, maybe manager type figure and gets him both in and out of scrapes as it goes. And it's interesting because this year, 1936, when Swing Time came out, Victor Moore was also in uh, one of my favorite films, Make Way for Tomorrow, playing a totally different part where he's an old man who is uh, probably a little bit older than the actor, but not a ton. And he's cast out a little bit by his children. They can't take care of him anymore. And him and his wife may have to separate. And it's just one of the most poignant films ever made about old age. It inspired the film Tokyo Story by uh, Yasujiro Ozu. And I definitely recommend that one as well. To totally on a different type of film than Swing Time. But it's interesting that back to back he made those films and pulled them all both off so nicely. One of the big numbers in the film is a solo number by Fred Astaire. Maybe the most striking number in the film where you have these silhouettes dancing behind Astaire and trying to keep time with him. And then at a certain point they lose time. In the Bojangles from Harlem sequence, of course, many people watching it today are going to notice it's all performed in blackface. And that's obviously, unfortunately, something you see in a lot of old Hollywood films. In Ebert's review, he cites a uh, cite Cinebooks that makes a case that it's not a typical blackface sequence. They write, perhaps the only blackface number on film which doesn't make one squirm today. His skin is made up as an African-American rather than a minstrel show caricature of one. Astaire dances an obvious tribute to the great Bill Robinson. And that's a dancer that this was a, a sequence was a tribute to. Um, I mean, you know, that I suppose that's fair enough as a comparative analysis, but certainly it doesn't really alleviate the context all that much today. Again, according to Ebert, the timing of the silhouettes, was, it, it wasn't like they were synced up to a stair. It was back projection that was going, and he timed himself in time with it. A really charming sequence in the film that's not actually a dance number. It's a great musical sequence between a stair and Rogers in which they don't dance, uh, although they do move is a fine romance. I mean, it's a great song, but also just the setting is gorgeous where they're out in the countryside and it's snowing. You know, few things look as good in black and white as snow. I think cigarettes, uh, cigarette smoke is probably up there as well. And there's actually a shot even before that to cut away for a second from what I'm talking about where uh, they're in a casino and they're looking out over the city as it starts to snow and you see the lights below and oh man, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a keeper, that shot right there. But yeah, back to A Fine Romance. You have the characters kind of teasing back and forth a little. Ginger Rogers kind of wants and professes love for her, or at least make out a little bit. And he is uh, resistant because he still wants to go back to his fiance, which is such a bizarre conceit at this point. I, I don't know. It's, it's not entirely clear if he doesn't want to hurt her feelings or if he thinks maybe he's still in love with her or what. But of course, it needs to happen so the plot can move forward in that way. And then one of the big last numbers is Never Gonna Dance, where it starts out as him singing to her on the steps, and then they end up dancing on the dance floor. And this sequence happens after there's like a scene between him and his fiance, and Ginger Rogers thinks that, you know, they, they 
can't see each other, so she's gonna marry the band leader, and they end up dancing on the floor. And it's kind of a farewell. It's interesting, at the time when I, when I made my dance lineup, and I wrote a little, sometimes a little blurb on some of them, not all of them, but this one I did. At the time I wrote, back to the dancing, we have the marvelous closing number, Never Gonna Dance. As with I Won't Dance, that sequence from an earlier Astaire Rogers film, Impulse eventually overcomes the singer's protestations. Like many of the numbers in Astaire Rogers films, this is narratively very important. It represents the reconciliation of the two characters, bringing them together through the music. So many sequences in these movies are not superfluous asides, but essential character development. Or rather, the substance of the stories exists in the dances, rather than the dialogue and action surrounding them. Well, that's kind of true. I was actually, I think maybe I was looking back from a couple months on seeing it, and I misremembered, because actually this is not the reconciliation of the characters. There's a whole sequence afterwards, which I found a little bit tiresome, where uh, they're convincing, you know, her fiancé that not to marry her because uh, he, he's got to wait till his pants are fixed. You know, it's a callback to the beginning of the film, blah, 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 blah. Don't really need to get into the plot mechanics of it. But the point is, it's not the reconciliation yet. And yet, emotionally, it feels like it is. You know, the, the other stuff later with the comic the goofy stuff with the pants, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're not getting married, and they're laughing, and they're getting ready. That almost feels like an afterthought. Really, the climax of the film does come in that dance. So in that sense, I, I was right, you know, even if I was wrong. <laughs> there's, there's a sense in which it really is the dances that carry the spine of the film. And of course, this also has the first to stare Roger's kiss, but it's off screen. We get a door blocking it for some reason. I don't know, maybe they were afraid they would disrupt the magic. A lot of people feel like later when they finally did kiss and carefree, that was kind of it for the partnership. The next film was kind of faint after that, and then they didn't make another film for like 10 years. Whatever the case may be, in this, they kiss, but we don't need to see it because we see them dancing, and that's kind of enough. And I'll end with Lawrence's own words on the film when he picked this back in, way back in February. It was going to be a March pick, and now finally getting to it now. He wrote, I just think this is the most joyful film ever. Every time I watch it, my mouth hurts from having a huge big smile on my face from start to finish. The two main dances, To Pick Yourself Up and Never Gonna Dance, are among the most beautiful things I've ever seen. That's it for this episode. On the next episode, we'll continue the classic Hollywood theme, but we'll jump forward 17 years, I think. Let's see, 1953, 1936. Can I do the math there? Uh, yeah, basically... 17 years, which is interesting because we're going to talk about a couple of Hollywood stars who are entering middle age at that point and how the film deals with that, as well as introducing a very up-and-coming Hollywood star as well. So there's so much to discuss there. It's a Howard Hawks film. It's a comedy uh, monkey business. Let's hear the teaser. Well, just look at what goes into this monkey business. There's a generous helping of Ginger. Ginger Rogers, that is. A dash of Charles Coburn for a chaser. Plenty of Marilyn Monroe for Spice. 